I was going to say y'all have to figure out which picture it is, but I guess this row right here would probably be the only people present who would know what picture it was. Um, he talks about the children with their um, acquired skill. He said that they acquired in the United States of making hats. Uh, you you would have known. <clears throat> but um, anyway, there's a picture in the newsletter that you should be getting this week that... Um, the kids are sitting there working on their crafts during school. They, the orphanage went from having a Christian school to having a homeschool or home schools during um, COVID when the government wouldn't allow the teachers to come to the orphanage anymore. The parents all decided they were going to keep schooling the kids. So, Anyway, really special times for them there. It was exciting for the children at first. <laughs> but, you know, the excitement wore off after a few days. The idea of homeschooling sounds fun, and then you start doing it, and you're like, oh, it's school. <laughs> academics are still academics. Okay, well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 15. The subject sounds scary. Preparation for persecution. I didn't know anything better to call it. Because at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus turns his attention on getting the disciples ready to face people who were less than willing to hear their message. And so, as um, Jesus is turning from the subject of last time, which was, I am the vine, you are the branches, He's talking about their need to abide in him, and I, I have to say again that I don't think you can really separate anything of John 14, 15, or 16 from the work of the Holy Spirit in the church age. It's just really hard to step away and take away the Holy Spirit from the equation. And one reason why I think that is because of how frequently Jesus will be talking about something that seems completely different, and all of a sudden he mentions the Holy Spirit again. And then he goes back to talking about something else, and then the Holy Spirit comes back in again. I don't think that's by coincidence. I think, in my opinion, it's because everything that's being discussed here is what the Holy Spirit is going to take care of once Jesus is gone, even abiding in Christ. How are we able to be in Christ? Well, the Holy Spirit puts us into Christ when we get saved. Um, um, how are we able to abide on a daily basis? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I can't put ourselves daily abiding in Christ's presence. Um, we can be obedient to the Word of God. We can spend time in the Word of God. But it's the Holy Spirit that really makes all of that come together. And as we come here, I don't think it's any different as Jesus begins to address the subject of persecution, they're getting ready. And I want to start here in verse 16, because even though that was from our last lesson, because it really is going to help us as we get into this. He said, ye have chosen, not, sorry, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you <coughs> that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. I mean, right here, he slips right into 
the subject of persecution. And he's going to stay here for a little bit. But what I wanted you to notice, especially with verse 17 here, is that Jesus is in preparing the disciples as he switches gears into focusing on persecution before he tells them they're going to be hated. He said, love one another. And I think this is so key. As Jesus is about to prepare them to be persecuted, as as far as I know in studying church history, as far as I know, John was the only of the disciples who died a natural death. He was somewhere around 100 years old, maybe a little older, and um, died a natural death. Of course, the Romans had tried to kill him. Um, some tradition says they even took him in a coliseum, put him in boiling oil, and they were going to do away with him. And my dad refers to John as the hard-boiled preacher because it didn't work. They couldn't kill him. And so anyway, they ended up putting him on the Isle of Patmos, of course, whereas Matthew... Um, was a martyr. James um, was a martyr. Um, Andrew was a martyr. Peter was a martyr. Um, we know more about his death, but um, people like India, uh, Matthew, I believe he was in India when um, he was executed. Some of them, one of the disciples, I think it may have been Matthew, was nailed to the ground. And um, one of them, I believe, creatures ate him. Anyway, I mean, just terrible deaths that these men were going to die. So Jesus is preparing them. Okay, all this has been really wonderful, but um, you've seen people hate me. They're going to hate you too. So he's letting them know up front, this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be a picnic. But before I tell you that, I'm going to tell you, love one another. You're going to need one another. We've got to view... um, our brothers and sisters in Christ is family. Laura's always telling our kids, you need to be best friends because your friends will leave, but you're always going to be related to your siblings. And if you're best friends with your siblings, um, that's just the best friends you can have. And in my life, I found that to be true. People I thought growing up were so close to me and um, I would sometimes maybe even visit with and hang with at the expense of my relationship with my brother. Well, where are they today? But where's my brother? We're still connected. We still have a connection. And um, so we need to view our Christian family as part of the brotherhood as, um, let's see, I wrote this down here yesterday. Peter referred to fellow believers as part of the brotherhood. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it's interesting. Let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. There's a few times that that Peter mentions brotherly love. He's getting the Christians in Rome ready to be persecuted. The persecution under Nero, terrible persecution. Um, He's getting them ready for that. And as he's preparing them for this fiery trial, as he refers to it, In 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, he says, these, uh, sorry, um, oh, I'm in 2 Peter. These are wells without water. I'm like, yeah, that's not describing Christians. Okay, 1 Peter 2 verse 17, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Notice his second instruction there. He says, number one, honor all men, 
And then he says, love the brotherhood. In chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil, nor railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So he said, treat one another as brothers, as brethren. And then in 5.14, he says, greet one, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. So he's talking about this family relationship. Paul refers to um, the body of Christ again. That's this family. That's this um, fellowship that we have with other believers. And so as he goes to address persecution, he reminds them first off that we're going to need one another. These disciples were going to need one another as they go into this persecution. So he said, love one another. And it's amazing. You can be off somewhere by yourself, but knowing that someone else is on this planet that loves you and cares about you can be so encouraging. I mean, I've been on the other side of the planet before in a foreign country, feeling very lonely and remembering that there was somebody else praying for me can make such a powerful, powerful difference in your life. I remember when, uh, before we came here on staff, I remember at times being on mission trips, knowing there were people here at North Bell praying for me. I mean, it was just, it's encouraging to know that you've got brothers and sisters who love you and care about you. It's powerful to know someone's going to stand by you. They're not going to be ashamed of your chains, as Paul referred to it. Here he was in jail, and he writes to Onesiphorus, and he says, you were not ashamed of my chains. In other words, when I got put in jail, and people were suddenly, some Christians, embarrassed and wanting to disassociate with Paul because he's a jailbird now. We're not going to have a preacher who's been in jail at our church. Um, he said, you didn't have that attitude you were not ashamed of me, and you were not ashamed of my chains. And it's important that we are loyal to one another, and it will really go far to encourage one another and help one another when we enter into a time of persecution, which I think we're entering into before long here in our country. We need to remember to love one another. So let's get to our first point here. That was the introduction. Number one, uh, we're going to look at four things that we the disciples, rather, had in common with Jesus, and I think that it falls over to us as well that we can take and have in common with him in difficult times. Number one was a common conflict. He says, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If the world hate me, Number one, we see Christ's relationship to the world. He said, you've got to be confident. You've got to be aware of the fact that if people hate you, they hated me first. Now, I have seen Christians that the world hates because of the way they treat the world, because of the way they act, because of the way they behave. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about a Christian who's living a holy lifestyle, who's following God. He's loving. He's kind. He's... Um, ministering to people, yet as Jesus saw, what did he get in res 
in return for his love. It was hatred. And so this was the condition or the relationship, rather, of Jesus in the world. It was hate. And he said, you're going to get the same thing. So then he talks about the disciples' relationship with the world. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, I want us to get the meaning of what Jesus is saying here, and not just, sometimes we read some of these passages like even verse 16, verse 19, we read them and we say, oh, there's chosen. See, right there. God had chosen them to each one get saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. First of all, let's focus on what he's talking about here. He's talking about these disciples that he's taken out. He's ordained for the ministry. He's taking them out, or well, about to send them out as he's about to die. And they're going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel. He's talking about a comparison here. They are not of the world. They're of a different community. They're of the brotherhood. They're of the body of Christ. One thing to note here is both in verse 19, where he says, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and sorry, 16, and ordained you. He's not talking about individual personal salvation here. If he was, he would be saying, I chose you, singular. But in the Greek, these are plural. I chose you as a group to go out. And these verses get used, um, and it came from a cult in the um, fourth century, I believe it was, that had some weird cultish beliefs, and they found some Bible verses that would support their weird doctrine of this God that they had created in their religion that loved some people and got pleasure out of torturing other people. And um, anyway, this religion um, got twisted into Christianity, and they found some Bible verses that would work, support their thing, like this, these verses, Jesus had chosen them. And so they said, well, what about everybody else? Well, Jesus chose them to go to hell. And so God, one way God gets great glory is his glory will be completed when he throws people in hell, and then he really gets glory. That's really sick. But um, these verses are taken and twisted that way sometime. But if we look at the context, he's not talking about individual salvation. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about these, this group of disciples, this, I guess you could say this first church, as Jesus has his disciples and he's taking them out and he's training them. I understand the church was fully 100% established or maybe confirmed on the day of Pentecost, which actually today is the anniversary of Pentecost. But um, he's talking here about their service. I've chosen you. I've ordained you. For what purpose? What is the context here? To bring forth much, what? Fruit. To bring forth fruit that remains, he actually said. So now he says, the world's going to hate you because he hated me. And then he explains why. He says, because your relationship with the world is that you are not of it anymore. You're from a different group. You're from, you could say you're from a different clan. You know, back in Scotland, Ireland, in the days when there were the fights between the clans. You know, I mean, you were proud to be a member of this clan. Well, we hate that clan. You know, it's, you know, up in the mountains um, of Tennessee when there were um, feuds between families. 
I'm of this group, you're of that group. Why do we hate them? Because they're of, you know, they're the McCafferty's. That's why we hate them. Why do you hate a McCafferty? Because they're a McCafferty. You know that Andy Griffith show where they go on and on and Andy's trying to get to the bottom of the feud so that he can resolve the issue. He had been to the basic seminar and learned about resolving root issues. I'm kidding. But that's what he was doing. He was trying to get to the root of the issue. He said, if we can get to the root, we can fix the root, then we can settle the feud. And as he questions both sides, he finds out the reason why they hated one another is because of who they were. You remember that family? Then I hate you. Why? Because we're supposed to. That's what we do. And he says, that's what the world does. You're not part of their clan anymore. You're of a different group. You're of a different body. You're a different people. There's something different about your nature even. You don't belong to them. And he says, that's why they hate you. Then look at verse 20. I mean, this, is, this really helps me because when people get mad at you and act like you have a third eyeball because you're a Christian. It just really brings confidence and goes, oh, oh, that's okay, because that's the way it's supposed to be. It's what Jesus said. And, you know, when I was growing up, I'd hear preachers preach like this and talk about um, how the world looks at Christians. And um, I didn't see it. I mean, when I'd go out and do Bible clubs, I was in some bad neighborhoods, and it was only every once in a while that somebody treated me bad because I was a Christian. Usually it was white people that were really ugly to me and acted like they wanted to kill me because I was out evangelizing. I mean, it was very rare that I found that. Most people, even the gangsters, respected us. And some of those guys, the moment you could tell, you knew they were the drug dealer, it was very obvious. And the moment they'd find out what you were doing, they'd get their own kids and make their kids come and sit down and listen. And they'd tell you, I don't want my kids to turn out like me. They need Jesus. You give them Jesus. You know, like put it into them somehow or another. But we're living in a little different day to day, whereas in some communities that happens, the world is getting more and more antagonistic toward Christians. Um, John, um, John Wesley, if he had preached at a meeting, the, the England was so antagonistic toward the Methodist and toward the gospel preaching. And um, Charles Wesley would sometimes preach in front of an open window in the church. And he would have his horse tied underneath the window. That way, when the mob came in the front doors of the church to take him out and beat him, he could just, like John Wayne, step out and land on his horse and ride away. And um, John Wesley was so used to this that they say that um, at, at points where he would preach somewhere and then he'd leave realizing no one was upset. Everybody was happy in that community because they had had the gospel and heard it and people were getting saved and nobody was mad. He would stop along the road and pray and beg God to show him what was wrong with his life because nobody was mad because he had read these verses and he took them literal. They're going to hate me. And if, the world, if nobody got mad in that town when I preached, I must be doing something wrong because if I'm going to be like Jesus, they're not going to like me either. And if they all liked him, John was really concerned about that. Um, that's nothing I've ever been worried about. But um, for John Wesley, the persecution was so severe, <coughs> he understood. But then let's look at the disciples' relationship with the... Um, their relationship to Christ. In verse 20, remember 
the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Jesus is telling his disciples, don't think that you're too big. He, I guess Uncle Jerry would say it, don't get, too, you know, don't get too big of britches. Don't think you're too important. Sometimes we get upset because of the way somebody may respond to us. Even when we were confident that we weren't doing it wrong, yet people react and get angry back at us. We know that Jesus didn't do anything wrong. People were constantly angry at him, constantly reacting to him. There was a constant conflict with the religious community. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. It happened to our master. It will happen to us. And we see more and more of that in religious communities today. Um, The more the popular church in America, the further it gets away from the word of God, the more you simply living a Christian life is going to antagonize them. When, when my wife is around somebody and they get angry at her because of the way she's dressed, too old-fashioned, it's happened. People have gotten mad because my wife was wearing a skirt. I've got to ask, why did that make you mad? Like, what I thought we were brothers and sisters in Christ. Why are you so antagonistic about somebody looking that way? Like, why? It's not because it's immodest. It's not, why does that make us mad? I, I'll never quite understand that fully. Oh, you've got too many kids. Some Christians get mad at you if you have too many kids. I'm sure the Muldrows have had people mad at them before. You walk into a church and they look at you ugly. I thought these were my brothers and sisters in Christ. Honestly, I should be able to walk into any Baptist church in America and be greeted with open arms. I've been in brethren churches in um, Romania that was such a like-mindedness. Um, that it should be that way. It should be like the little old man there in Romania. We got in the back, he got in the back of our van. And we're facing each other, sitting there in the van. He couldn't speak English. We couldn't speak Romanian. We grin and nod. After a minute, he thinks of a way to communicate with us, and he starts singing this hymn in Romanian. We were on our way to the Brethren Church, and this man was from the Baptist Church. So he knew all the same hymns that we knew. And we would go, and we'd sing our Baptist hymns. They couldn't understand a word we said. But what they said was, your your songs are so happy. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I mean, that was like... That was super duper exciting sounding to them. But we're sitting there facing each other and <coughs> he starts singing and Laura and I recognize the tune, but it's not dawning on us what's, what he's trying to do. And all of a sudden, as he gets to the chorus of the hymn, we recognize what he's singing and we join in singing with him. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. And I realized what he was telling us. I can't talk to you right now, but we will in heaven. That's what it should be like every time we come up with other Christians. But we need to understand that we're living in a a society where sometimes we walk into another church or into another group of Christians 
And just simply being a Christian or standing for the Bible or being against abortion will suddenly make you their enemy. Well, that's really disturbing because that's not true Christianity. True Christianity is biblical. True Christianity follows the Bible. True Christianity tries to be more like Jesus. And so we need to understand that we do live in a time where sometimes the world is masking itself as Christianity. But Jesus said, don't be surprised. You're not greater than I am. Don't be surprised when you are persecuted. Why? Because we share, we have a common conflict that we share in. Secondly, if it came up here. Secondly, we have a common confrontation. Now, this confrontation, I use the word confrontation because, I mean, that's what it is here. But, but it's really amazing to me because Jesus was not talking about himself being confrontational. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me. If um, I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. There's three parts here. First of all, Jesus was talking about his words. He said, I came and spoke to them. He's not talking about screaming at them. He's not talking about being John the Baptist and out hollering and screaming, repent and be baptized. I mean, Jesus didn't preach the same way John the Baptist did. He said, I spoke to them. I mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These sermons that Jesus was preaching, he said, I spoke to them. He said, had I not done this, they hadn't had sin. In other words, they would not have known they were sinners. That's the reason why the Pharisees would get so mad when Jesus would teach, because they would get under conviction and realize they were sinners. They would get so angry at Jesus when he spoke. They were angry at his word. So this was the, the first area of confrontation. And again, I think it's funny that I would even use the word confrontation with the words of Jesus. There were some things he said that were confrontational. But I would say the majority of what Jesus said was not really that confrontational. I mean, if you take it with genuine, even genuine logic, so much of what he said is just makes sense. Blessed are the um, peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I mean, that's not that. That's not rocket science. If you're a peacemaker, you're going to be called the children of God. I mean, it's, it's not that difficult. Yet when he said it, all of a sudden people are angry. It's a big fight. Why? He says, for, they, for now they have no cloak for their sin. And if you look in the margin of your King James Bible, it says that that word cloak means excuse they now no longer have an excuse. So even all these religious people, Jesus had taught them, Jesus had preached to them, they hadn't been so aware of their sin. After his message, they were aware of their sin. Now they have no excuse. They got upset at his words. Look what he said, he that hateth me hateth my father also. So it's not just that we have this in common with Jesus, we have this in common with the father as well. But then he talks about his works. If I had not done among them the works, which none other man did, 
they had not had sin. They wouldn't have been aware of their sin. You read the Gospel of John and you see his miracles and you wonder why it made the Pharisees mad that Jesus would heal a man they couldn't see. Now he can see. Because even his miracles made them feel guilt over their sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Why? Not just because of his words, because of his works. So don't be surprised when you go out and you do good that it would make some people mad, even some Christians. I had a Christian one time, a deacon at a church, quite disturbed that I was going out and telling black kids that they could come to Jesus. He told me I had no business going to black neighborhoods. I needed to go to white neighborhoods. I should not be going there because I'm white. And so anyway, I stood there and he told me, he said, Aaron, they're not going to listen to you. I had just given a presentation about a thousand kids I'd had in Bible clubs that summer. He saw the pictures. There may have been a handful of white kids, and I'm not exaggerating. I'd been in New Orleans. And so there had been some in Mississippi I had um, shared the gospel with. But I got through, and he's telling me, I don't need to do that. I don't have any business doing that. Those kids aren't going to listen to me anyway. Anyway, my response was a little bit shocking to me, how strong I responded to him, not in an ugly way, but it was so shocking. I was talking to a deacon of the church like that. Anyway, later I found out apparently he was a member of the KKK and a deacon of the church. And it was funny, my work, what was my work? I was going out and doing Bible clubs with little black kids. And that work made him mad. Why would it upset him? Maybe a little guilt? I mean, he just heard about black kids getting saved. A whole bunch of them in church. Um, He was not comfortable with that, I'll say gently. So they were upset at his words. They were upset at his work. And then we see the association of his word as well, all caps, because I want to differentiate between his words that he was speaking and the word of God itself. Verse 25, but this cometh to pass. Why did it happen? Why did they get mad at the things he said? Why did they get mad at the things he did? Uh, To fulfill the word of God, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in, what does he say there? In God's law? Is that what he called it? Look at verse 25. Tell me if you can find something significant here in Jesus' words. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. Whose law was it, Michael? It was man's law. Now, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why would Jesus call it their law and not God's law? I mean, he is specifically referencing the Old Testament law. Because no longer was the Jewish religion or the Jewish scriptures the word or the religion of God. It had become the religion of men. They had turned it into something that God never intended it to be. The Messiah came and they mistook him. They ignored him. They didn't even catch it. Why? Because they had taken the word of God and twisted it with their commentaries and everything and their teachings and their traditions. And so when Jesus is referring to his own words, the Old Testament, 
He refers to it as their law. That it might be fulfilled that's written in their law. They hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. There's one time that in the Gospel of John, um, their um, holiday, one of the holidays, I think it was Passover, was referred to as the festival of the Jews. The Old Testament called it a feast of the Lord. Why would John call it and Jesus call it a festival of the Jews? Because they, it wasn't God's festival anymore. They had warped the whole thing. We could say that of much of Christianity today. It's not Jesus's religion. When people in Christianity say if Jesus was on earth today, he would be working at Planned Parenthood. I'm so, when, when people in Christianity say stuff like that, you realize that it has become our place. That's why the church of the Laodiceans, it wasn't the church at Laodicea. All the other, the church at Sardis, the church, the church at Corinth, the church at all these other places. When you get in the, in the book of Revelation to the church at Laodicea, it doesn't, the Bible does not refer to it that way. The Bible says it's the church of the Laodiceans. They had become so carnal that God said, that's not my church. That's their church. And that's the church where he said, I stand outside and I knock. If any man, any individual will answer and let me in, I'll stop. I'll come in. I'll sup with him. And so we see here, Jesus said, this all happened so that the word would be fulfilled. And then in verse 26, we find a common a common companion. But when the comforter is come, we know that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. I want to encourage you, if you're afraid to witness, you shouldn't be afraid to witness. Because Jesus says here, he said, the Holy Spirit is going to testify of me. And then he says, you'll be witnesses. We can have a lot of confidence in sharing our faith because we understand that it's the Holy Spirit who does the real work in salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who does the real work in teaching. It's the Holy Spirit who does the real work in preaching. And if we're witnessing one-on-one, -on -one, it's the Holy Spirit that does the real work. We have the same companion that was constantly with Jesus, leading him and guiding him and directing him. As you read the Gospels and you see where the relationship of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we realize it is, uh, it's something we have in common with Jesus, is we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The disciples were going to have the Holy Spirit as they went into persecution. They didn't need to be afraid because they could speak boldly in the midst of the persecution that was coming because the Holy Spirit was going to be working. Keep going. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. I don't want you to be offended. I don't want you to have a breakdown when the persecution starts. This is going to bring us here to our last point this morning. A common confidence. First of all, he wanted us to have confidence in his words. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. 
I don't want you to stumble when it happens. I want you to be confident. Walk confidently. They shall put you out of the synagogues. When you got kicked out of the synagogue, that was a serious cultural... Um, how am I trying to say? It, you were basically kicked out of the community. It was a, a terrible thing if a Jewish man got kicked out of the synagogue. And he said, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. He'll think he's doing God a favor. Makes me think they're going to be killing him in the name of Christianity. In the name of religion, well, not in the name of Christianity for them. It was in the name of Judaism, but I could very well see it in the future. Some of the attitudes and things I've seen coming out of some churches wouldn't surprise me one bit to persecute another brother because another brother so-called because of something they're saying or doing and thinking that they're doing God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father, nor me. So he's wanting them to be confident when the persecution comes. He doesn't want them to stumble, so he's telling them about it beforehand so that they have more confidence in the words of Christ as they're seeing, oh, well, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Jesus told us this was going to happen. That changes the face of persecution. I mean, I see some things happening in America today that would be mind-boggling and depressing. But somehow or another, because I'm seeing them as fulfillment of prophecy, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like, as far as discouraging. Because I see it and I go, oh man, that makes me so mad. You know, that's my initial reaction. And then once I think about it for a few minutes, I'm like, well, why should I be surprised? This has been in the works for a long time. This is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Why am I surprised? But it gives me confidence in the word of God when I see it happening, when I see it coming to be. It also gives me pity when I start realizing Jesus says they're going to persecute you because they don't know me or my father. But these things have I told you. These things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Now, I've got to say, I mean, when you find out, oh, people are going to hate me. Really? I mean, that's going to cause sorrow to fill your heart. Jesus is going away. Sorrow to fill your heart. You're going to be persecuted. Sorrow, fill your heart. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Some of you are. Sorrow is going to fill your heart. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you. It's beneficial. It's necessary for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So the second part of this confidence we have here is because we have the Holy Spirit. The disciples could walk away in confidence with the words of Jesus. They could walk away in confidence knowing that they had the comforter, they had the Holy Spirit coming, and Jesus said it was better for them that he go to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come because things were going to be better off for them with him gone and with the Holy Spirit present. Verse 8, and when he is come, that's the Holy Spirit, he will, I have this underlined in my Bible, he will 
reprove or convict, we might say, the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. <coughs> of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have those words underlined in my Bible because this gives me so much confidence. When I stand and I preach, one thing I do not have to be concerned about is convicting people of where they need to change. I don't have to worry about that part. My concentration is on teaching the Word of God and what it says. The Holy Spirit is the one that does the reproving. It used to make me sick at my stomach to teach or preach anything and knowing of the, the responsibility that was with it and the, the burden that I had for people and the, the desire to see God work in their hearts and lives. And I felt like I had to somehow or another make that happen. And when I understood this truth, I realized, nope, my responsibility is to be the messenger. The Holy Spirit is testifying. And so if I get up and testify of Jesus and I just teach his word, the Holy Spirit is the one who is reproving. That is so freeing. And then when I get up and I just preach the word and somebody gets mad, I had a lady one time get so angry sitting on the second pew. I forgot what I was saying. She's, I heard her going, no, no, no. And that wasn't quite as evil sounding as she said it. And I looked up to see what I was hearing, this groaning and grunting from the second pew. I looked up and she was sitting, breathing hard and just looking up at me with these crazy eyes. It was horrifying. God had given me the verse when I surrendered to preach from Jeremiah chapter 1, where he's told Jeremiah, be not afraid of their faces. I thought it was a funny verse. And then I was up preaching, and I saw that woman's face and the anger. And it came to mind, be not afraid of their faces. And I'm like, oh, that's what he was talking about. And then Barney Fife went back to trying to talk. Oh, it was horrifying for a moment. But I started realizing when somebody gets mad at the truth, and I just presented the truth, I just taught the word, I didn't get into making my own nitty-gritty detailed conclusions, trying to force my own standards even on their thinking, and they still got mad at me at the end. I know somebody else was talking, especially when somebody goes out and they heard you say something you didn't say. You know, oh, wow, that was the best. Even when they're happy, that was the best sermon on whatever. And they go out and you're like, did I talk about that? Actually, last uh, Mother's Day when I preached, um, I, I, a couple of days later, Laura said, I was so glad you in, included that in your message. And she mentioned two things I had said. Like, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. I'm like, really? Anyway, we went back and I realized later, both things I hadn't planned on saying them, not sure why I said them. Well, now I'm starting to understand why I said them. But it was the Holy Spirit bringing things to my mind and saying things that were going to be able to spew in on a target and hit it right in the middle. I didn't know it was a target. I didn't know what we were shooting for. I just knew what the text said, and that's what God told me to say. So I said it, and God was shooting. The Holy Spirit was going, oh, no, that one right there, that hit a target. That one right there hit a target. Had an old Cajun man tell me one time, he said, Aaron, there were some people in the church mad at me for something I'd preached. He said, Aaron, he said, don't worry about it. He said, 
throw a handful of rocks into a pack of dogs, the only ones that are going to yelp are the ones that get hit. I guess somebody got hit last Sunday. But when we realize it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the work, and sometimes you can say the sweetest, kindest way possible, but the Holy Spirit is reproving of three things. Sin makes them acknowledge their sin, makes them recognize their unbelief. Of righteousness, he said, because I go away, the Holy Spirit's going to have to deal with this. Well, what's the righteousness? I think he's talking about the righteousness of Christ. His goodness, his holiness, his righteousness. And when the Bible is preached, the Holy Spirit takes it and shows the holiness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then of judgment. He says, because the prince of this world is judged. So three things the Holy Spirit's going to start dealing with. And when I got under conviction that I needed to be saved, these were three things that the Holy Spirit dealt with. Number one, I was a sinner. Number two, Jesus was righteous and he had paid for my sin on the cross. And number three was judgment. If I didn't get saved, I was going to hell. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit told me when my dad shared the gospel with me as a six-year-old little boy. And now I look back and I go, that was definitely the Holy Spirit working in my heart. Because the three things I came away with that and still have as a 40-year-old today is that I was a sinner. Jesus was righteous. And without him, I was going to hell. I was going to be judged. But it was the Holy Spirit. My dad was talking very sweetly to a six-year-old little boy. But the Holy Spirit took that sweetness, and I mean, I mean, he took out the bullwhip, and I got saved. So we need to realize and have confidence that we have the Holy Spirit who is convicting, and we don't have to be concerned about that part. He said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. And this is the last part of this. The Holy Spirit is going to be our communicator to us. He's going to work with, we can have confidence in the words of Jesus. We can have confidence, as the disciples did, in the work of the Holy Spirit and the lost. But we can also have confidence in his work in us. He'll guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself But whatsoever he shall hear, catch this, whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine. In other words, what I have, I'm going to give to him, and he's going to receive it, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. I put this little diagram here. This is what Jesus is saying here. He said, everything that I have, that I'm saying, that I'm trying to teach y'all, he said, it's what I got from the Father. And what I got from the Father, okay, so it came from the Father to the Son. He said, what I got from the Father, because everything the Father has is mine. He said, what I have, I'm going to give it to the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit has, he's going to give to you. You see this whole whole relationship with the disciples as they were going into persecution. He was trying to get them to understand, I'm giving you everything that you need. The Holy Spirit is going to be present and he's going to consistently be giving you everything you need. 
And we have this amazing relationship. The disciples here had this amazing relationship with not only Jesus, but with the Holy Spirit, with the Father. And then I want to take it one step further. The Holy Spirit gave them everything they needed, and we got the Word of God. So what was given from the Father to the Son, to the Spirit, to the disciples is now given to us because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived in those disciples some 2,000-odd years ago. We have living inside of us, and we have the Word of God that was given to the disciples by the Holy Spirit that originated from the Father. What confidence you and I can have when we turn on the news, when we look on social media, when we read the headlines in the newspapers, we don't have to be distressed over what's happening today or what it could mean for tomorrow. Because we can have the same confidence. Confidence in the Word of God. Confidence in the fact that the Holy Spirit will continue to work with the lost. And we just need to preach truth. We just need to speak the truth of God and let the Holy Spirit do the work. And third, confidence in the Holy Spirit working in us and giving to us through his word what the Father has given to the Son and the Son has given to the Spirit and the Spirit gave to the disciples and it got passed all the way down to us. I don't know about you, but that gives me so much confidence. You know, sometimes I start worrying about my kids and what their future is going to be. But if they have all this, there is nothing for me to worry about. Because the Holy Spirit is going to do a lot better job taking care of them than I can. So much confidence. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have given us your spirit. Thank you that you've given us your word. And I pray that you would help us this week to walk in that confidence. To not be fearful, to not be afraid. And while there are some things that should disturb us, help us to not be disturbed. But be confident in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.